0: All right, we're going to spend some time now studying the Bible. This is a central part of what we do each week. We study the Bible because we believe it speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. So we want to open up the word and listen to him. Our series that we're in right now is called Jesus the Early Years. We're working through the book of Luke, chapter by chapter. We're going to be in chapters 2 through 4 for these first couple of months of the year. And then during the pre-Easter Lenten season, we're going to stop and study Feasting and fasting. Focus in on that, how that works, what the Bible has to say about that. And then reset again to Jesus, the later years after that, and finish the book of Luke. Uh, so if you have a Bible, open up your Bible to Luke chapter 2. We hit the tail end of Luke chapter 2 last week because I wanted to hit that specific story to set the tone for reading the Bible in the new year. Um, and so now we're going back a few verses from the story. Last week was 12 year old, 12 year old Jesus talking to the teachers at the temple. So this week, we're going back again to one more baby Jesus story, okay? One more baby Jesus story. It's going to be in Luke 2, verses 21 through 40. Verses 21 through 40, and it can be found on page 857 in the Black Bibles. You'll see under the chairs, and, and you're welcome to keep those as well. If you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love for you to have your own Bible. We're calling it Trust This Child. Trust This Child. There's a big focus on this child, this Jesus. He as the one we've been waiting for. In the ancient world, children were very important, but they were important in a different way than how they're important in our culture. In our culture, we really prize children when they're children. And in the ancient world, children weren't really prized when they were children. People just looked forward to them growing up and being old enough and strong enough to be able to give back to the family business and to society. And so it's kind of a flipped view of children. We really value children as little ones, but we see no hope of them giving back to us as adults, right? <laughs> but I have to hedge that a little bit because I started to realize as my children have grown up and we've been launching them out into the world, there's been a little part of me that's grieved of sending them out. And, and like we prayed for it, right? We prayed and trained and taught them to go out and impact the world for God's glory, And yet, as each one leaves the nest and goes farther and farther, there's this little part of me that grieves because I kind of wish I could keep all the chicks at home, right? Keep all the babies close by where they can be my comfort, where they can be my my consolation, where they can help me. I don't want to send them out to help the world. I want them to help me, right? Over Thanksgiving, we got to see some of our adult kids it was a sweet time, really enjoyed the time with them, but coming back off of that Thanksgiving break, there was just like this grieving all over again, you know? I was just like, oh, feeling sad all over again, and in God's sweet providence, we had just begun singing some of our Christmas songs around here. We were singing uh, the Jenny and Tyler song, Handel's Messiah. Uh, we sang it a couple of times over the Christmas season, and it quotes Isaiah, and it quotes Isaiah and his uh, projection, his prophecy that this child is coming, the one we've really been waiting for, the ultimate child that we can trust in. It says, for unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. I realized in that moment when I was singing that song, number one, it had never really occurred to me how much people in the ancient world would hope in their children being their champion as they grew up. And it hit me in that moment as I'm watching my kids out into the world. And then it hit me second to that, but Jesus is our champion. He's the one we hope in. I don't don't hope in my kids to be my comfort. I hope in Jesus to be my comfort. He's the one that we are to fix our, our hopes on. He's the one that we are to focus on. And For you, it might not be your own kid. It might be your job. You might be fixing a trust and a hope on your career that it is not meant to carry. You might be fixing a a hope and a weight and a trust in your spouse that your spouse can't handle. But this child can. This little baby born 2,000 years ago. He is the one that we should trust. He's the one that we should hope in. For unto us, a son is given, a child is born. Let me read the middle section of our passage. I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 25 through 30, just to get us started, to kind of get the core of it. And then as we move through the text this morning, we'll, we'll read more verses on either side of it. So starting in verse 25, chapter 225. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples. This is the child that we're called on to to focus on, to hope. There are many things in this world, many things in the ancient world that we might hope in, many things that we might put our weight on as our champion, as our trust. But we're told that Jesus alone can bear that weight. He's the only one that will be our true champion. He's the one that we've been waiting for. I'm gonna pray that God would help us to believe this, that he'd meet us here. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that we can read and study, but we also pray that your Holy Spirit would supernaturally awaken our hearts and minds to hope and trust in these truths, that you would change us, uh, that you would be here with us, and that this would be a supernatural experience of your word by your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the big idea is to trust this child. Uh, in the ancient world, we see an emphasis on children, as I said, being hope, being a future for a family, uh, being the one that helps to, to fund the business or work hard or you know expand the, the farm or whatever it may be. And we're told that this one, unique among all children, unique among all hopes, is the one that is really the hope and the trust Of the entire world. And as we see it unfold, what we see are three reasons to trust this child. Number one, we see that we should trust this child because this child fulfilled God's law. He came in concert with what God had already revealed in his Old Testament law. This child fulfilled God's law. Secondly, we see that this child is for all kinds of people. This child is for all kinds of people, which is really good news because we are all kinds of people. Thirdly, we see that this child turns us upside down. There's going to be some kind of good news, bad news at the end there. This child turns us upside down. In the end, it's a good thing, but it can be scary. So number one, this child fulfilled God's law. Verses 21 through 24 unfolds this for us. Looking at verse 21, it says, And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And so circumcision was a physical mark, a ceremonial thing that was done in the Jewish population. Uh, It was a surgery on the male body part, but it was to symbolize purity in reproduction, right? Now we want to clarify, this just symbolized purity. It didn't necessarily make their children perfect, right? We know that the Old Testament uh, emphasizes that, and the New Testament emphasizes that that we actually need God to circumcise our heart. We actually need God to to cleanse our hearts because our hearts are the real issue. But the Old Testament people of God had all kinds of laws that were ceremonial to tell the story of we need to be pure and God's going to make us pure. So this is one of them. And Jesus, according to the law, was circumcised. And then they named him Jesus, just like the angel told them to do. Verse 22 continues the story. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses... They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So again, a lot of things are happening here in line with God's law. They had to be purified after birth, when there's blood, when there's surgery, when there's anything like this. There are all kinds of ceremonies of purification. Again, to symbolize the moral purity that they should have been living out. So this is all, again, to fulfill God's law. But a lot of this is symbolism. A lot of these are ceremonies. It says in verse 23, As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so it's detailing here, the details of the law. Every firstborn male was to be bought back, redeemed from God. The idea here from God is like, your firstborn belonged to me. And when it came to fruit or cattle they would offer the firstborn, but he's like, you're not going to offer your baby to me, but I want you to ceremonially symbolize this, and I want you to buy him back through a ceremony at the temple. So whenever you have a firstborn son, you're going to go have this ceremony to buy him back. So all these different ceremonies are taking place. We've got circumcision earlier, and then we've got him coming to the temple to dedicate Jesus, to redeem him back as a firstborn, to do purification rites for Joseph and Mary. All of this is happening, right? And these are all symbols of a story. See that? These are all ceremonies that are pointing to a bigger story. And what I really want us to understand is that we have to distinguish between the symbols and the story itself. We really have to make sure we understand that when we read our Old Testament, when you're doing your Bible in a year program and you're reading the Old Testament and you hit Leviticus and some of you want to tap out and give up, remember that part of what we're reading in the Old Testament is set building. And part of what we're reading is storytelling. The Old Testament people of God were given both, set building instructions to put on this play. And then there's the story itself. What's the story? The story is we've turned from God, yet he pursues us in his love. He's absolutely holy and pure and our sin can't come into his presence, and so there needs to be sacrifices that are made, but God is gracious, and he makes a way for us so that he can adopt us into his family. That's the same story we're telling in Jesus. It's the same story they were telling in the Old Testament. We just get confused because there's all these set-building instructions, right? There's all kinds of instructions on like, well, here's where you need to stand, and here's how you need to build the stage, right? There's all kinds of details on how he wanted Israel to tell that story, but don't miss the story. The story is the same. Old Testament, New Testament. Holy God, sinful people, sacrifices made. He redeems us. He saves us. I, I grabbed a picture of backstage. Any of you ever been in a play? Any of you ever done that or helped with community theater? It's a totally different experience, right? To sit in the audience and watch the play versus going backstage, right? You, you see all the stuff on the backside, like you see the set and it's like fake. Oh, there's not anything behind it, right? Like, there's all kinds of surprises when you go backstage. This one I thought was a cool picture. I don't even know which theater this is, but it's a huge backstage. There's all kinds of machinery to move things around. And when we read our Old Testament, sometimes we get bogged down because we're, we're looking at the pulleys and the levers, right? Make sure you don't miss the story. That's why last week when we talked about reading the Bible in the New Year, you've always got to make sure it's prayerful and it's relational. You're in that book because you believe it's a book that tells you about who God is. So don't miss the story. Keep going back to the story. Continue to maintain the distinction between the story about a God who loves you and all the set-building instructions. They're not bad. They were good. They were perfectly right for God to give them these instructions. We're no longer under those instructions because now we're under a new covenant. Galatians clarifies that. Hebrews clarifies that. If you have questions about that, I'd be happy to talk to you about that afterwards because there's all kinds of cults that will tell you, no, we still have to keep building the set the same way. No, Hebrews says, no, those were, those were shadows. Now we have the fulfillment in Jesus. We don't have to keep building the set the same way, but we have to tell the same story. And that story is a pure, holy God who loves us by his own sacrifice because of his grace. And we must trust in this child. So as you read your Bible are you making it relational? Are you getting bogged down in the details? Make it relational. Say, God, what do you want to teach me from this? What do you want me to learn? Continue to listen to him. We talked a lot about different ways to read the Bible last week. Uh, I brought up some of the different devotionals and Bible reading books and plans that I've used over the years, prayer guides. These are all up here if you want to flip through them. They're actually mine, so please don't steal them but you can flip through them after the service if you're still looking for things that might help you to, again, follow the story and distinguish between the story of a good, holy God who loves his people by grace and separating that out from all the ceremonies and the rituals. A lot of the things you'll hear today is that because you don't maintain the dietary laws or the ceremonies of the Old Testament, then you shouldn't maintain uh, the laws of moral purity. But the Bible is very clear. God actually took his 10 commandments, put them in a golden box, right? And separated them from the other law. So it's really important for us to distinguish that. And then the New Testament repeats those moral commands again and again and again. So if you have a hard time separating it, you can say, okay, 10 commandments, they're separated. They're putting them in a special box. And then New Testament, we're given moral commands again and again. If, if you're struggling with, okay, what's, what are the things I'm still bound to? And what are the things that are, that are just old covenant for the people of Israel, but not for me? That's a good way to kind of keep those things in mind, focusing on the Ten Commandments and rereading the commands of of the New Testament, what the apostles have given us. So read the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament and make sure you can maintain the difference between Old Covenant ceremonies and set building and the story that is the same, same moral law, same grace, same faith on both sides. Okay, second point, this child is for all kinds of people. This is related to the first point, right? Because if he's just for the Jews and just for the Old Covenant, then we're out of luck because most of us are not Jews in the Old Covenant. But here we see that he is for all kinds of people. Pick up the story in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms. And bless God, this is like a Lion King moment, right? It's like lifting the child up. He's blessing God. And he says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples. He is celebrating God's goodness, saying, now, now I can die in peace. Now I can die. You said I'd get to see the truth before I died. Now I've seen the salvation, the comfort of Israel. This consolation is literally the word he uses here. He's been waiting for the consolation of Israel, and here it has finally come. And he says, now, now I can die verse 25, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That word consolation is the same word that Jesus uses of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, when he's like, I'm leaving, but I'm sending the comforter or the counselor, the one that's going to help you. You're going to be okay. And so Simeon's like, I've been waiting for God to make it okay. I've been waiting for God to comfort, to console. And now I see the reality. It's this child. This is the salvation that God is offering. He goes on and he says, you've prepared this in the presence of all peoples, all kinds of people, all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. The word Gentile is the word ethne. All ethnic groups, all tribes, all kinds of people, all of us, no matter where we come from, a glory to your people Israel. He's now quoting the Old Testament when he says this light, of revelation to the ethne to all the tribes of the world. It's from Isaiah 42:6. There are also other allusions as well, but Isaiah 42:6 is a pretty close one. He says, "I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and I will keep you. I'll give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations." These are promises that God had made again and again. And this is where the prophecies get really interesting. He's made these promises to the people of Israel and then again and again he says, but it's going to be through this particular Messiah. So he's like, this is what Israel is going to do in the world. But Jesus comes as the true Israelite, as the true human, the true man. Romans chapter 5 kind of holds them up and it says there's Adam, the first man, and he failed. And then there's Jesus, the second man, and he succeeded. He did everything we were supposed to do. He was everything we were supposed to be. That's what we'll be focusing on in this Luke series. Luke, more than all the other gospel writers, is like, look at Jesus. He's the real man. He's, he's the real human. He's who we are supposed to be. Yes, Luke affirms the divinity of Jesus as well, but he helps us to focus on he was a real, a real human being. And he's our example. Is he our provision and our salvation, our redeemer, our forgiveness? Yes but he's also a model for us to follow. And here we see that this is not just for the Jews, but for all the nations, a light to all the ethnic groups, a light for all the peoples. Now, a lot of times people want to make it seem like uh, this, is the, this is some kind of like conspiracy, right? The change from the old covenant to the new covenant, the change from God focusing on the Jewish people to the, all the other ethnic groups that are in this room right now. Um, But it unfolded pretty clearly in the book of Acts. If you struggle with seeing how this unfolds, I recommend going back to the book of Acts. One of the really cool things about uh, the Bible is it's very honest and transparent. Our founders struggled to understand what God was up to. So when you're reading the Bible and you're like, I'm going to read the Bible in a year and I'm going to work at this, and then you're kind of confused, you're in good company. The disciples were also confused. They struggled with this too. And you see that unfolding in real time in the book of Acts. So it's really assuring for me, right? Because sometimes I put this like bar on my shoulders of like, I should just have it all figured out. I should never have any questions. But the disciples had questions too. We have questions. That's part of walking with Jesus. You're like, Jesus, I don't understand this. The disciples struggled as well. So in Acts chapter 10, we have this story where Peter gets a vision. Peter gets a vision of what God's doing. Uh, I have a picture here of that photograph, so to speak. Uh, It's really a kid's drawing. And so we've got Peter on the roof of his house, seeing a vision unfold of all these different animals, and he's told to eat them. And what does Peter say? Anybody know the story? He's like, no, God, I am not going to do that because those animals are nasty, right? Now, I don't know where you grew up, but depending on your family and also the country you grew up in, there are certain animals that are like out of bounds, right? It's like in some parts of the world, they eat cats. Did you know that? Most of us don't eat cats. If you do, don't raise your hand. We don't want to know about it. (laughs) Because we're just like, that's nasty. That's dirty, right? That's how they thought. In the Jewish worldview, with their ceremonies of purity, they'd been trained to eat certain things and not eat other things. And those were, again, the set building instructions to point to a bigger picture, a bigger story. It was to call the people of God to purity. Now, to be clear, when you go back and read the Old Testament, there's some There's some confusion, right? Like some things in Leviticus and some things in the Old Testament seem to have some health benefits too, right? Like people argue about that, like it's really not healthy to eat pork. You know, there's there are there are fine debates about that. But what God was telling Peter to do was to eat all the nasty stuff. What was the point of that story? This story gets repeated again and again in the book of Acts. The point is not just to eat the gross things, but but to love the people that eat the gross things. That was what he was telling Peter to do, right? Like, think about it. If you had a friend that eats cats and he invites you over to dinner, you're probably not going to go to his house, right? You're going to be like, let's have coffee. I don't know about dinner, right? And that was the way the Jews lived with the Gentiles. They were like, okay, maybe from a distance, but we can't really be friends. God was tearing down those barriers. To clarify again, it's not about food. Like the food is not the big deal. The issue is the people. So when when God was calling Peter to eat the stuff, really it it wasn't about the eating, it was about the loving the people, pursuing the people, is that the gospel is for all people. So in what ways are we living that out? In what ways are we tearing down unnecessary barriers so that we can communicate God's love to other people? This is a big issue culturally, right? Like when you, you like different music, you like different things, it makes it hard to connect. In what ways can you bridge those gaps Ask good questions. Get to know people and their strange habits, right? So that you can show the love of Christ to them. So that you can move past those barriers. I think our number one application of this is just to thank God that he's included us. Because we're the weird outsiders, right? Like, like think about it from Jesus' perspective. Philippians 2 says he left the perfection, the holiness of heaven and came into our dirty neighborhood where we ate weird things, Right? He befriended us. He loved us. He took our sin upon his back. He gave himself for us. And we're to do the same kind of thing with others. So number one, give thanks that Jesus did that for us. Number two, start doing that for other people. Now, to be clear, I I think it's good to just start with the people he's put right around you, right? Like we have a calling to our family. The New Testament's clear about that. Love your family first. Uh, Last week, we interviewed someone about reading the Bible. Chanel was talking about reading the Bible as a young mom. You have way less time as a young mom than you do in other phases of life, right? So be kind to yourself. You can't love every tribe of the world simultaneously in all places all at once, okay? But start kind of stretching out your boundaries. Start praying. Say, God, who who are the all kinds of people you've put around me? Like, who's this other person that you want me to love? Who's someone I could show kindness? It might be a neighbor. It might be a cousin, right? It might be a coworker. Who are the people that I can speak of the Lord's kindness or show practical help of the Lord's kindness to them? The New Testament word for this is hospitality. It it literally means the kindness to strangers or the love to strangers, love to outsiders. We usually think about it in terms of cooking meals, but it can really be anything according to your gifts, right? Like, what are the gifts you have? How can you help show kindness, speak of the love of Jesus to people that are all kinds of people, that are outside your normal circle Of influence. And I think it's, again, helpful to think of it in in concentric circles, right? Like you kind of got your your close people, the people you're going to be with anyway. How can you love them well? And maybe the circle outside of that, maybe another circle outside of that. If you're looking for practical ways to engage more people, a really helpful thing is what we talk about a lot here, serving at the church, helping us to welcome others to Jesus here. We're a a broadcasting center where we want to tell people about Jesus. We want to tell the city, we want to tell the world, you can help us. Partner with Natalie Rocco. right? We had the example earlier during announcements, if you could sponsor a child that works with her. There are a lot of different ways that you can begin to extend the love of God through your own work and resources. Invite people to church, begin to tell people of the love of Christ. Third point is that this child turns us upside down. This child turns us upside down. It's good, and it's bad. I I grabbed a picture of someone just bowing down, uh, kind of looking brokenhearted, praying in church. Uh, The idea of the Christian life is this rising and falling. Um, In our pride, God brings us down, and that's really gracious when he does that. Shows us that we're not all that, and we really need him. But also in your shame, when you think that no one can forgive you, and no one can love you, and you're untouchable. He grabs hold of you, and he lifts you up. Christian life is full of these these risings and fallings that are going to be talked about here in the text. Starting in verse 33, it says, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. They're, They're continuing to be surprised and amazed, which again is encouraging to me. Just like I said, the disciples didn't immediately understand all the changes from Old Covenant to New Covenant, His mom and dad also, as disciples of Jesus, they were still figuring it out in real time. When we follow Jesus, we learn as we follow him together. They're discovering things, they're marveling, they're amazed at what was said about him. Verse 34, Simeon blessed them, mom and dad. And then Simeon turns to Mary, said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. Rising and falling. He's going to turn things upside down. And then he says, and for a sign that is opposed, what he's saying is it's not going to all be awesome. People are going to push back against this king. Many will not trust in this child. And he's getting her ready for that. And then he says, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. He says, Mary, your heart is going to be broken. As a parent, I can connect, right? Like I want to prepare my kids to do great things. I want to send them off into the world as adults. I never want them to get sick. I never want them to struggle. I never want people to be mean to them, right? But as you send them out in the real world, they suffer, they struggle. It's a part of God's plan as we suffer to serve his purposes in the world, but it, it breaks our heart. A sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Ultimately, Jesus is going to reveal the thoughts of your heart. He's going to help the rest of the world to see what you think about him. You're either going to to be humbled by him or lifted up by him. He's either going to help people to see that you're all right. You don't really need Jesus. You can do life on your own. Or the thoughts of your heart are going to be revealed that, man, I, I need him. I'm desperate for him. He's really the only one I can trust. Then the story continues. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. So that means she was only married for a few years, and she's 84. She's been single for a really long time. And it goes on and says, she did not depart from the temple. All this time worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. We don't have the details like if she had a little apartment, maybe she like helped with the work around the temple, or maybe she lived down the street, but she spent all her time there. She was there all the time, night and day, worshiping with fasting and prayer. Verse thirty eight says, And coming up at that very hour she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Another confirmation. And one of the beautiful things about how Luke writes is he keeps giving these witnesses to public events. Again, Christianity is a religion that says this is all public and you can go check and you can go talk to the witnesses, right? It's very journalistic. It's not like other religions where it's like, okay, we're just going to kind of tell you these stories, but don't check our sources. Don't talk to anybody, right? Christianity was saying, no, here, here were these public things and, and everybody saw it. Check me on this. Christianity was always inviting the people of the time to check the sources and and know the witnesses. It would expose things as they are. And so she's one more witness to God's goodness, one more miraculous event of this prophetess. We see her saying, This is it. Thank God she was waiting also for the redemption of Jerusalem. And then 39 wraps it up when they'd performed everything according to the law again, back to the law of the Lord. They returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. He actually grew. He progressed as a human being. Again, like we don't, we don't fully understand how all that works, but Luke continues to emphasize that, that this is someone for us to follow. The way I like to say it is Jesus didn't cheat. Like when you read about the life of Jesus... There's this little part in your brain that's tempted to just say, oh, well, I can't really follow Jesus because he cheated. He was Superman. It doesn't count, right? No, he's presented to us as a human that believed and loved God, his Father. And we're supposed to follow him. What would that look like in the new year if we said, man, my goal in the new year is to apprentice to Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. Now, we know we can't do it without prayer. We can't do it without the power of the Holy Spirit. But that's our goal, is to actually follow Jesus, is to actually apprentice ourselves to him, this man who offers us salvation, this child that turns everything upside down. As a daily practice of apprenticing yourself to this Jesus, I want to offer a couple of ideas from from this little section of the text. Um, Daily offer your pierced heart back to him. We've got this rising and falling cycle. You're going to have days when you're devastated. You offer that to Jesus. Jesus, everything went wrong today. You name it, you give it to him. Help me to know that you're good, that you love me, that I can keep following you. Your good days, where everything goes right, offer those to him. Your rising and your falling. Say, Jesus, this was such a sweet day. Thank you. Help me to be a good steward of this day. Your days that are complete wreck. Jesus, I don't know what's going on. I don't don't know up from down. But help me to continue to trust you. Help me to continue to follow you. As I said, the big idea is to trust this child. And we are to trust this child, Jesus, more than our own children. And, And we're to trust this child, Jesus, more than our career. More than what other people think about us. More than our spouse more than our gifts, more than our dreams, we are to trust this child. And we can trust him because he is the one that truly has borne our grief, our shame, our sorrows. To go back to the Handel's Messiah song, uh, song that we sang over Christmas, it says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows." Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. But that's not the end of the story. And he shall reign forever and ever. He shall reign forever and ever. This child is the one who lived the life we should have lived. He's the perfect human we're supposed to follow and model our life after. But then he died a sacrificial death, taking our place on the cross. Freeing us from sin and death and shame. And that's not the end of the story He rose from the dead. He reigns forever and ever and ever. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you gave your son to us. Help us to follow him in the new year. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd empower us. As we walk with you, God, teach us. Help us to hope. Help us to trust you. We pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.